Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. Our hearts are deceitfully um, taken astray, easily drawn away to idols. Our hearts become easily hardened and so often filled with pride. So our Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, unfold your word to us this day, that we might sense clearly that through your Holy Spirit you are speaking to us, through your word, that we have ears to hear your word, and then we would respond appropriately, Lord, in what you're seeking to impress upon us. Help us, we pray, to see Christ in the midst of your word and to find hope in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you ever, like me, feel like your life sometimes is stuck in a rut. You have the same job, you're doing, you have the same kids and the routine you go through every day, you live in the same house, you drive the same commute day after day, and you have the same relatives, you live beside the same neighbors, you still have the same problems, seems like those same unresolved issues that linger month after month after month. Do you find yourself longing for change? Do you ever think to yourself, God, I wish, I wish you'd be more active in my life. And you also sometimes wonder and ask the Lord, why in the world, Lord, would you leave me in this situation? A situation that seemingly is dragging on and on. Where are you, Lord? What are you doing? Now, I know if we're honest, most of us, if you're like me, also would wish you had a GPS for life. What I mean by that is, we like to know, don't we, what's up ahead in our life. We like to know in advance what's around the corner. And we want to know, how long is this problem that I'm dealing with, how long is that going to last? When will this situation go away? We want God to draw up for us a report about what he's doing right now to advance his kingdom and what's he doing right now to bring about transformation in my heart. What, what is going on now that this is going to really contribute to these issues in my life? Obviously, we're not the only ones that ever have these kinds of thoughts. And as I've thought about the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, I've thought of it once again about one of the world's greatest missionaries, more than likely felt these similar longings in his heart as well, as he's counting down the days in which he has been held under house arrest in this very significant built-up Roman city called Caesarea, and he's waiting to have his name cleared of false charges. That's his problem. Two years. And he's waiting for justice. He's waiting to be given his freedom again so that he can move about, so that he can advance 
and engage in the strategic ministry to which God called him to bring the gospel to the multitudes. And there are still so many people he would love to make Christ known to in the center of the Roman Empire in Rome itself. And he has three times previously given his own defense to these false charges. And what's happened? Well, it's resulted only in the same. More riots, more waiting. And there he is, stuck. And it's again, two years since he's been, had his last hearing, and he's still waiting. And now he's like trying to make sense of all these delays and disappointments that he's facing. If you got your Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 25. Chapter 25 in Acts, it's in page 1332 in your pew Bible. I encourage you to find your way there on your tablet, on your phone, or in your Bible. We're just going to read the first 12 verses of this account. And I would just say this, as I read this this past week, I thought that this passage we should see it as somewhat similar to the passages in Esther. If you remember, there's a book of the Bible called Esther, in which you read the book. Nowhere in all of the book do you find the name God even mentioned. But God, his fingerprints are all over the account of what happened with Esther. And I think the same is true in this account. There's, no, there's not a lot of significant theological teaching here. There's not a lot of uh, insights about telling what God did this and God did that. But God's fingerprints are all over these verses. Let's look now at Acts 25, beginning in verse 1. Festus, which by the way, verse 27, let us understand who Festus was. He's the person that succeeded and came after Governor Felix. And so now this is a new governor there, the Roman governor. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, he didn't wait around. The previous guy, Felix, he just sat around, procrastinated, oh, let's just do it later, kick the can down the road. But this is Festus. He's got, take this on. Three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul again, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have, have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, Festus said, let the influential men among you go there with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal, also the judgment seat, and he ordered Paul to be brought. So here he is again. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around again, bringing many and serious charges against Paul, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, this is very short, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Those are the three things he was being charged. But Festus, Wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. 
But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then when Festus had conferred with his council and he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. I find that in this text, contrary to the way things seem, God is at work in the world and in the, world, in the life of his witnesses in at least three ways. Here are the three ways I, I have gleaned from this text. First of all, God is at work in the midst of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Paul wasn't guilty of any of these charges. And the only thing that he had been doing repeatedly was making known the message about a Messiah who apparently was, did, was crucified at the hands of the Romans and the Jews, and that he was raised to life again, and that this Messiah and the message of his crucifixion and resurrection was so offensive to the Jewish leadership and the many Jews in general. So much so that here we are 24 months after the last hearing in Caesarea, after Felix had held this same kind of court um, procedure, and he sought to pacify the Jews by holding on to the innocent man Paul, even though nothing was ever proven of Paul two years ago, he's still holding on to him just to try to uh, keep in check any kind of um, riot that might occur among the Jewish population. So he, here he is stuck here with all this, and the religious leaders, even after 24 months, get wind about this new governor and bringing this trial, they are determined to what? Determined to have Paul put to death to kill him in an ambush. You talk about resentful, bitter, angry hearts full of malice. That's what we have in this text. And it seems to me as we look at this occurrence, it's a good reminder for us to see what's really going on behind just the activities here recorded, and that is that the greatest source of opposition to the church came not primarily from pagan Rome originally, from all these Roman rulers. It came from the leaders of organized religion. You see, people who appeared pious, people who wore impressive robes, people who would pray aloud in public, were the same people who were plotting murder in their hearts. And by the way, parenthetically, Paul used to be one of them, but the gospel had transformed him. And so here's this false religion is the greatest enemy of Christianity. It was true of the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire didn't originally oppose Christians until they, in their attempt to try to somehow unify the empire, which was quite diverse, they instituted Caesar worship requiring everyone in the empire to once a year offer up an offering and declare that Caesar is Lord. That's when the church became highly persecuted by Rome. 
You remember what Jesus said? He who is not with me is against me. So think about it. In our world today, where do we find Christians undergoing widespread persecution? Where are Christians being jailed? Where are Christians being attacked? Where are churches being torched, burned down? Why is it that in so many places in our world today, it's illegal to convert to Christianity? I would dare say it's because of organized religion. It plays such a big part in opposing Christ, in opposing his kingdom. And so what we see in this text is there's a spiritual war going on, being waged. And the question I asked myself as I read it is, where is Christ in the middle of this spiritual battle? Where is Jesus? Obviously, he is with his witnesses. He's with Paul. He's with his people. You say, how do you know that? It doesn't say that in the text. Well, if I look at the whole book, we look back at chapter 9, we look at the time in which Saul, the unsaved Pharisee, at the time was persecuting the church, Jesus stops him in his tracks and says to him, hey, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not just Christians, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with his people, with his witnesses. Jesus reminded his followers earlier in John 15 in the gospel, he says, since the world persecuted me, they're going to be persecuting you too. Because of our, our commitment to Christ. It is Christ the one that is offensive. And so Jesus was with Paul in prison. He is with his people today. And so it's a reminder that you and I are engaged in spiritual warfare. Not exactly the same as what Paul was facing. Not exactly the same as different people around the world in different countries and different contexts. But we are in spiritual warfare. And it seems to me in the, in the text of Scripture that talks about spiritual warfare... Chapter 6 of Ephesians, what does Paul say as a strategy for Christians in terms of dealing with the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged? It's not a battle against people so much as against the forces of wickedness in our world. What does he say? He talks about the armor of God, being sure we put that on, all about the gospel, making sure that we are clear in who we are in Christ and the word of God. And then it's what does he say at the end of the text? He talks about prayer. Prayer is vital in dealing with spiritual warfare. We need to be keeping in close contact with the commander and chief. And one of the things that Paul prays for in the context of talking about spiritual warfare for himself, and I think it's a prayer that all of us obviously need to keep praying for each other and for ourselves, is we need to ask God that he would, Ephesians 6, 19, 20, that he would give us the right words in the opening of our mouths to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Praying that we will keep on speaking boldly for Christ as we should. Isn't that a battle for you? battle for me? Isn't that oftentimes when we're struggling is because God has got us in situations in which we're in. There are difficult situations. He has us in a certain place is not the reason oftentimes he's waiting to see us be used as his witnesses. We are in spiritual battle. We need to be aware of Christ's work in and through us in those contexts. 
Secondly, as I think about this text, I've often wondered about not only is God at work in the midst of spiritual warfare, but he's also at work in the midst of an unjust legal proceeding. Parts of chapter 25 sound like deja vu all over again, right? When you read through the book of Acts, you're like, didn't we just read this? Isn't this sort of the same thing over again? Because Paul, again, makes another defense before, before a Roman tribunal. And this is the second time now it's happened in this town of Caesarea. And the previous hearing, nothing was resolved. And two years later, as I said, Romans, I mean, Paul's still sitting in this Roman house arrest, if you will, situation. And this Festus guy, who is trying to take some action, desperately trying to tamp down any kind of... Um, nervousness among and unrest among the Jewish subjects of his kingdom. He doesn't want anything to be getting out of control here because that jeopardizes his job. So he goes to Jerusalem, first thing, meets with the leaders, comes up with some sort of plan, some sort of scheme. He wants to bring Paul down there. And Festus is more interested, obviously, in giving the Jews favors than he is in giving justice to those under his rule. So then I say to myself, well, put yourself in Paul's shoes. You're innocent. You haven't broken any laws. You haven't committed any crimes. Particularly, as he says there, I haven't done anything worthy of death. But each trial where you're presented, you're, you've presented your, your defense before the authorities, what's happened? No one has been able to produce any convincing proof that you are truly guilty of anything breaking the law. What do you do? Where's God in the middle of all that? You begin to wonder, has God forgotten about me? I learned about an incredible story, true life story that happened back in 1980. The morning of October the 4th, 1980, a young nursing student was brutally murdered in a Chicago suburb of Oak Park. And a person living just down the street from where that murder took place, a fellow by the name of Steve Linscott, he's married, uh, he has a couple of children, and they're like dorm parents in a halfway house getting people who have come out of prison and they're sort of giving them some uh, assistance in trying to get their life reestablished. He tells, with the encouragement of those he shared this with, he ends up telling the police about a dream that he had had the night of that crime. In telling of this dream, the, some of the details were eerily similar to what happened, but on some areas of the dream were totally inaccurate and not even close at all in some ways. But believe it or not, he was later arrested for the murder of this woman, this nursing student, and the police interpreted that his dream account was sort of a roundabout confession of someone who's like really a psychopathic killer. A jury of his peers later found him guilty. They sentenced him to 40 years of prison. After three years of serving time and surviving in this awful prison situation, and nine years of legal appeals, he was vindicated. He was cleared. He was set free. 
based on DNA evidence that proved it was impossible for him to have been the one that committed the crime. So all that time, three years, he separated from his wife, from his children. And it was during those 12 tough years of prison time and then followed by all these appeals to clear his name, Steve Linscott certainly asked the question, God, where are you in all of this injustice? Why did I do that crazy uh, sharing about this dream I had and then end up in prison for doing it, for sh sharing just about a dream? And he ended up writing a book years later in which he began to unfold some of the lessons that God taught him that he learned in that waiting period, waiting for justice. He talked about his heart being challenged to truly believe that God was good. Growing in his awareness of the fact that God was sovereign over all things. Growing in his awareness that he was digging deep into the word to daily survive in the difficulties of what he was facing. He looked back and saw God did a marvelous, amazing work in his heart and life to strengthen his faith, not to destroy him. So here's Paul. He's like this Steve Linscott guy. Not that Paul had a dream like that. But he was accused of a crime he never committed. Each time Paul defends himself before the judgment seat, he knew that there were no, no grounds for any kind of condemnation that should have been shown to him. And both Felix the, and Festus, they knew this guy was innocent. They said so. And so unsure about whether or not he would be offered up as a political favor to his enemies, finally Paul just says, listen, I'm not getting any justice here. I've waited around. I'm appealing as a Roman citizen to Rome, to Caesar, which is his right to do so. As I've thought about that, his appealing to Rome to stand before the tribunal for Caesar, isn't it interesting? He's saying, I am looking for justice from the high, most high and powerful person in this empire. It seems to me that one of the battles that Christians face is dealing with Satan, who is called, in Revelation 12, the accuser. He finds great delight in reminding the followers of Christ about their sin, in reminding them about the fact that they have failed so miserably so many different ways and magnifying their sins before them playing them over again and again. He loves to sow doubts in the minds of God's people about how God would ever love them or how God would ever completely forgive them for all that they've done. And Paul, in his appealing for a vindication, he knew that ultimately that was not going to be found in Caesar's tribunal and judgment seat, but he was thinking primarily in terms of dealing with all of these thoughts of guilt and Frustration over the fact that he knew he was done wrong so many times because Paul had a terrible history of so many sins that just from his years before he knew Christ could easily sidetrack him from doing anything and being zealous for Christ. He knew that ultimately his hope was in the fact that Jesus was in, stood before Pilate in the judgment seat and Jesus was the one who was declared guilty on Paul's behalf. It was Jesus that was declared guilty on our behalf. It was Christ who was unjustly condemned 
when he bore the penalty sinners like you and I deserve. See, Jesus died so that guilty people like you and me might be set free from condemnation, that we might be set free from shame. And I don't know if you're struggling with that today, my friend, but I'm telling you, if you are still in your sins and you never have come to Christ who did stand before the tribunal and take what you deserve, today is the day to come to Christ, to know the full forgiveness that comes when you surrender to Christ, trust Him, and yield to His Lordship. I've also been thinking about the fact that when Paul is making this appeal, maybe you're thinking, well, yes, I've, I'm thankful I don't have to face that guilt anymore, but I sure am frustrated with all that I'm having to do here, and I don't see much for it. How is it that people who have no interest in Christ and His kingdom seem to be doing so well in this world? In my world, is nothing but problems, difficulties, uphill battles, and, and struggles that never go away. Not to mention injustice. And I would like to remind you that there's a promise that one day, every believer, every forgiven believer, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the tribunal of Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds. The deeds that we've done according to exactly what we have applied our energies to and accomplished. One commentator offers this insight. I thought it was helpful. He says, on that final day, Jesus will weigh all that we did for him. And he will allocate appropriate eternal rewards. There we are, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We cannot be punished for our sins. What we did for Christ as an expression of our love for Him during our lifetime will someday be praised, will someday be acknowledged, will someday be rewarded. Even if it seems like it's so unfair, even though it seems like things along the way you just feel like this is just not the way the world should be working. My friend, we still press on. Why? Because Christ is working. He has done the work, and someday He will reward us. Not only is Christ at work in the situations of unjust legal proceedings and spiritual warfare, but I also would like to draw your attention to the fact, and this is maybe something that all of us can identify with, uh, on some level or not, that God's in the midst of working in what seems like endless waiting. Like sitting through a long sermon. Endless waiting. That was a joke. What I think is the point here in this text is that it doesn't say explicitly, but we know from other texts of Scripture that God is sovereign over all things, all of life. And Jesus sovereignly interrupted Paul's life when he was the unsaved Saul, the Pharisee, on his way to Damascus, and Saul stopped him in his tracks and informed him on that day, listen, Saul, you're now going to be Paul, and you're going to be my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and before the kings, before the most powerful people in the society in which you live. You're going to be the one to take that message to the high honchos. And sure enough, three missionary journeys later, which I've estimated about 24 years later from the time he was converted 
to the time which two years earlier in Jerusalem, Jesus spoke to Paul and said, you must witness at Rome, just like you have just witnessed now in Jerusalem. And sure enough, Jesus reassures Paul, I have a plan for you. What's happening in your life is according to a plan that I have for you. And the long delay in Caesarea was ultimately orchestrated under the sovereign hand of God. Now here's an interesting statement I think that we all need to ponder, and that is this. If you're a person who is very um, compelled to see results quickly, you want to see things done now, listen to this thought. God at times uses inefficient processes to accomplish the expansion of his kingdom. That is, God does not always follow the timetable that you and I think that he should be operating at to get things moving the way they, you think that they should be moving at. We assume that efficiency and speed are God's best means to accomplish his work. But God used 24 months of what you could call wasted time in Caesarea to do what? To launch Paul as a prisoner, but straight to Rome. And that's what the rest of this book is about, is getting Paul to Rome. And while in Rome, Paul's doing what? Well, he's waiting around again. That seems to be something he did a lot. He gets under house arrest, still waiting for this uh, tribunal. And he's there writing epistles, writing letters, being used of the Holy Spirit to impart truth that we still are needing to read even today, including the book of Philippians. And could it be that all these delays, all this waiting was used by God to teach Paul some very important lessons, including the lesson which he writes about in Philippians of humility. Of realizing that he has to become less concerned about himself, his own agenda, his own passionate ways of wanting to get things done immediately and realize I need to sort of back off and be willing to take an interest in the people around me that God has sort of stopped me in my tracks. I'm, I can't go forward. I've got to deal with these people today. And so in humility, gaining an insight into Jesus' attitude of saying, I'm going to lay outside my own desires and preferences. I'm going to serve the people around me. That's part of what it means to be humble. May I remind you that God governs over every postponement every period of waiting for open doors. Isn't that the lesson that Joseph learned in Genesis? Here's Joseph, I'm convinced, he was absolutely, positively assured that God was at work in times of endless waiting. He confidently believed that God ordained all sorts of interruptions, injustices, and time that he served in prison on false charges, all he was convinced that God was going to work those things all together for good to accomplish much good, not just for Joseph, but for so many people around him. If we truly believed the same about God, would that help us with our impatient ways, with our impatient heart, with our impatient spirit, chomping at the bit, saying, okay, God, it's time to get this moving. I'm convinced that Paul's character was refined through that final Roman imprisonment. 
such that Paul could say with full assurance, as he did in Philippians chapter 2, God is at work in you. God is at work in me. God is at work in this person's life over here. God's at work. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way in endless waiting, but he's at work. And then he also realized he needed to learn the lesson of what? Doing all things without murmuring and complaining. That's a hard lesson to learn. It's not too hard for people who are getting things done quickly. They don't have to wait on anything. But if you're stuck waiting, it's easy to start murmuring and complaining. So I conclude then with some questions. What kind of endless waiting, quote unquote, are you dealing with in your life? Are you waiting for God to give you a spouse? Are you waiting for God to bring you a solution to a family crisis that you're facing? Are you waiting for God to give you a new job title, a promotion, a change in your pay to finally move up and receive more compensation? Are you waiting for the salvation of your spouse, of your child, your son or daughter, of your parent perhaps, of your siblings? Are you waiting for the hurt in your heart to fade? Or maybe you're like so many of us, waiting for your resurrection body someday, in which there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more decay, and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's not easy waiting, is it? But I assure you, God is at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we operate by a timetable that's often different from your timetable. We oftentimes find it easy to question why things are not happening according to the expectations that we have. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to remember that you are at work invisibly sometimes and mysteriously at times but we pray that you would help us father to respond in faith to trust you in those times we pray that you would help us even today to remember that your work in standing before the tribunal before Pontius Pilate is the basis upon which you being found guilty you who are put into the place in which you took our punishment upon yourself is the means by which, Lord, we can deal with the fact that we can be forgiven, we can be set free, we can be liberated from all of our sin and guilt and shame. Help us today, Lord, to celebrate what you have done for us and to be reminded of what you will do in the future someday. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.